Leah. Yes. Do you have any celebrity encounters? Does the one I paid for count? Sure. Uh, I mean, I met the struts. Do they count? <laughs> well, I mean, sure, you can make that a your example. That's my that's, example. Okay. You don't want to. <laughs> You're dig, not getting me off of this. You don't want to dig a little deeper. And... Um, celebrities. One time, my senior year, we went to Washington D.C. for like our senior trip, and we turned around a corner, and Stephen Colbert is just standing on top of a car, Ooh. yelling at a crowd. Oh, I mean, there you go. <laughs> we we could not really see him that well, but we definitely took part in whatever mob activity was happening. Yes. So, but I mean, teaching I, children to mob young. Also met the struts, but um, yeah. I think my favorite. So I actually have two. Can I can I can I tell two? Sure. One's of me and one's of my dad. Okay. Um, the one of me. So as those who don't know, I grew up like an hour and a half from New York City in uh, the Hudson Valley. So we'd go to New York City eh, pretty occasionally. I was in FAO Schwartz, or I was getting ready to walk in FAO Schwartz, and here's Steve from Blues Clues. <laughs> There's no bigger celebrity when you're that young. Walking, I'm four. Okay, folks, this is the height of Blues Clues. The only Clues. celebrity you know. <laughs> and my mom's like, look, there goes Steve from Blues Clues. And I turn around and I just yell, Steve! Aww. No turnaround. <laughs> now, New York City is loud. So I don't, I don't fault you, Steve. The sound of a four-year-old is hard to hear in New York City. <laughs> especially their heart breaking. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> It's all right, Steve. I went through counseling. I'm better. <laughs> I'm better you hear now. hear that, Steve? I'm a better person. You know, that show's revamping and getting a new host. I know. I'm very excited about this. It is very exciting. The second one also took place in New York City. My dad and my brother were in Central... Not Central Park. Um, Grand Central. And my dad sees this lady struggling with a suitcase. And he's like... I'm going to go help her. So my dad says, oh, ma'am, let me help you. And she's like kind of pushing him away. And he's like, no, I'm here to help you. I see you're struggling. Let me help. And she turns around and it's Joan Rivers. <laughs> and Joan Rivers looks at my dad and says, sir, you're very kind, but we're filming right now. Oh. <laughs> and my dad looks and there's cameras right there. <laughs> he's just trying to help. And my dad is a very stewarded, steward type person. Oh, that's great. Anyway, I'm Bethann. And I'm Leah. And this is She Will Rock You. And that was a really bad intro. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. I'll edit it like it sounds perfect. (laughs) Um, So before we start this week's episode, we got our first iTunes review. Yeah. And to thank that person for leaving it, we're going to read it right now. So this is from the user, No Good Music Yo. But it's... But it's, it's, it's no as in... K-N-O. Yeah. Like, I know good music. Yes. It's, it's a pun, okay? Uh, and it says, love to hear about my favorite music from the perspective of these girls. So Aww. thank you. Now yeah. everyone else listening, go leave us a review and we might read it. Or send us mail. Or send us mail. We are always... Our DMs are always open, so you can just slide right in there. Slide it in. And ask us things. <laughs> I'm going to take that out. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just messed up our curse word master list. 
you said it. <laughs> I, I'm going to re-say that just in case you do cut that. Our DMs are always open, so feel free to, to message us and tell us how great we are. Just don't send us hate mail. <laughs> um, anything else we need to talk about before we get this thing going? I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> you may or may not know why we're laughing. It depends oh, on if Beth Ann leaves it in or not. Hey, I'll see how I'm feeling. <laughs> we'll um, see. So, this week, we're talking about the original bad boys of rock and roll, the Rolling Stones. Wait, is it, wait, hold on a sec. The original bad boys? They're the original bad boys. Not like a Johnny Cash or a Buddy Holly? No. All right. They did not. Prove me wrong. We're going to talk about it. With that being said, there are three disclaimers <laughs> I must give you. <laughs> I feel bad for the people who are like, oh, this is a nice podcast. Listen to Ellen John. Listen to Journey. And then we just like threw them into the water. Look, just because our album art is pink means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Do not be deceived. Um, so first is that they have a 60-year career. So there is no way in hell I can tell you all that in an hour max right now. So there are large chunks of this missing. Just accept it. The second is that they are the original bad boys. So there's a lot of sex, drugs, rock and roll in here. Don't listen with your children. Why would you do that with this podcast anyway? Why would you listen to a podcast about rock history and say, children, gather around. (laughs) Gather around. Do not gather your children. (laughs) The third is that with the Stones being as big as they are and as famous as they are and having as many sexual partners as they did, there's like seven sides to everything that happened. I don't know which one is the right one. I went with the one that was most common amongst the sources that I consulted. Wikipedia? No, I did Wikipedia. I read a biography on Mick Jagger, which was basically written like a really bad tabloid novel. Dude, I don't know why he chose to write a book on Mick Jagger when he kind of seems like he hates Mick Jagger, but whatever. But yeah, I mean, there's there's people coming and going in the band. They all had like eight girlfriends and 17 wives. So like, <laughs> there's a lot of sides to every story. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. So let's get this thing started. The year is 1950, and a young Keith Richard and Michael Jagger are school friends. They live Aww. in the same neighborhood. They see each other coming and going. Um, they don't interact like a whole lot. Like, they kind of hang out like kids in the street hang out. But um, Michael, who goes by Mike, he he and his family are a very upper middle class family. Like they're very well off. Uh, his dad runs a tight ship. Like he was not allowed to go play with his friends until he did like twenty push ups. Like his oh. dad, his dad would like stop him at the door and be like, "Mike, you need to do your push ups." And he would just like drop Jeez. and give him twenty, and then he could leave. Like he was. Like, run, like, a military household. Holy cow. Keith, meanwhile, his parents are super chill. They're working class, and they're like, yeah, you can go hang out in the street till midnight. We don't care. <laughs> um, so they're, they kind of hang out a little bit, but then uh, young Mike Jagger moves away. He goes to boarding school, as all young English boys do. Mm-hmm. Oh, they live in Dartford, Kent, which is in the southeast of England. They, 11 years later, reunite on a railway station, just, like, happenstance mike's coming home to visit his parents he's carrying all these um these blues records interesting and they like literally like bump into each other on the railroad station like that reese's commercial <laughs> yes <laughs> you got peanut butter on my chocolate i got yes. chocolate on my peanut butter Except they just kind of like mix their records all up and they're like you like blues i like blues don't you live on my street let's be friends 
So um, Mike goes to school at the London School of Economics, which is as fancy as it sounds. Uh, this was super beneficial to him later in life because he learned a lot about economics and um, as one does in an economic school, business and how to run a business. He he became the one who ran the band like a business. Keith, meanwhile, goes to art school and continues to fall in love with blues and guitar. At this time, Mike is also interested in music, but he, because his dad is the way he is, he has to play sports too. So during this time, Mike has like a, a little garage band on the side and he sings and he's playing basketball one day and he trips and falls and bites off the tip of his tongue, which he says, or sources say, is one of the best things to ever happen to him because it changed the way his voice sounded and the way that he spoke. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So he could not talk for like three or four days because his tongue was so swollen, but I think it paid off in the long run. Wow. When Mike and uh, Keith, who Jagger in his British accent calls Keith. 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 That's, that's the nickname. Uh, they, they bond over their love of blues music and they make a band. And what else would you call it other than the Blues Boys? Oh, number four. Do I see number four? Bad band names. Bad band names. So the two of them, they they start playing some clubs. They meet some other guys, Adam the band. They obviously play covers because they're like 19 and they're not writing their own music at this point. And as they're playing this club circuit, they pick up a guitarist named Brian Jones. And they were most blown away by his blues guitar playing, which is not something people in England were really doing at that point. So I don't know where they found this guy. Hmm. Literally found him in a club. Uh, Brian also has an upper middle class background like Jagger. And he picked up guitar to rebel against his parents. Yes. Don't they all? (laughs) So he was really into black American Southern R&B music. Okay. Which really influenced not only the early style but throughout all of the Stones history what their music sounds like. Brian as a child had to had to move every few years because he would get a girl pregnant and then her oh. dad would come after him with a shotgun. Oh. <laughs> what a lovely career. So we're off to a great start here. So his goal was always to start one of the first blues bands in London. Um, so he posted a wanted ad for some musicians, Mike and uh, Keith see it, Keith, Keith see it, and they all join forces. They also pick up a drummer named Charlie Watts and a bassist named Bill Wyman. So they have this band. They're still all the Blues Boys, but they don't necessarily like it. So one day they're booking a gig and Brian Jones answers the phone and they're like, Hey, what's your band name? We got a book you want or something. And he literally sees a Muddy Waters EP laying on his floor called Rolling Stone. He goes, uh, Rolling Stone. And that's how they got the band name. He stole it off of a <laughs> Muddy Waters cover. You know what? I'm noticing a trend. <laughs> Plagiarism. Elton John, yeah. <laughs> Elton John, if you haven't listened to the episode, he gets his name from two of his bandmates. Just his friend was like Elton Dean and John Long Silver, nope. whatever it was. He literally just saw it on the floor. Yeah. This is which the if greatest names come from just random situations. Which uh, at this point is also worth noting. Rolling Stone magazine has nothing to do with Rolling Stones the band, but also wondered. got its name in a similar fashion. So the band stole its name from the Muddy Waters 
album, Rolling Stone magazine stole its name from the Bob Dylan song, Like a Rolling Stone. Because oh. their vision, um, we can do an episode about the magazine later, the vision for the magazine was always that it would never be stagnant, it would be constantly evolving. That's cool. Like a Rolling Stone. They actually have a reason. Yes. No. The Mick uh, Jagger Rolling Stones. Brian just saw it on the floor. <laughs> yeah. As the story goes. Who knows? So they played gigs based, uh, billed as the Rolling Stones. There's no Rolling. G at this point. It's the Rolling Stones for a year. And people, so you got to, it's 1962 in England and this blues band with a bunch of white kids are playing. Uh, and no one really knew what to do with them. They would get billed as a blues band at jazz clubs and they would hmm. play rock and roll. So... But yeah. they very, very quickly, they would start like the first week they'd have like like one excited kid in the front row. And then the next week there'd be like six excited kids. And then it grew and grew and grew and grew. <laughs> uh, they eventually got a weekly gig at the Crawdaddy Club. Yes. <laughs> and they, that's when their following really started to pick up. Eventually the club got so crowded on nights that the Rolling Stones played that no one could move. Like they were packed wow. in like sardines. People were standing on the streets. Couldn't come in. So... That's 1962 to 63. Literally a year. In 1963, they sign with the Beatles' former manager, Andrew Oldham. Okay. Our buddy Andy here is only 19. Oh. And he's the Beatles' former manager so, at 19. So wait, he's, he was the Beatles' manager at 19? He was probably the Beatles' manager at like 17. Oh, and then they just like... I don't know why he just goes around rolling stones at nineteen. Yeah, I don't know why he's no longer the Beatles manager. They're, I mean, the Beatles are surging at this point, so they're probably like, "Bye, Andy, you're seventeen. Yeah. We don't need you." I'm yeah. gonna call him Andy. I don't think he, that's his actually his name. Um, at this point, the Jagger and everybody else are just twenty, so like he's their age managing them. He's actually younger, but he is a genius. So he would pay his friends at these crawdaddy gigs to just act hype. He would like pay his dude friends to, to like start in the back of the crowd and rush to the front of the stage and like pick girls up and like <laughs> just just but it toss worked. something just yeah just basically grab something and just toss it. But it worked like that built up such a hype. Um, wow! Because he was nineteen, he could not obtain his agent's license or sign any contracts without his mother co-signing. <laughs> Gotta bring his mom along. So they ended up having to hire a booking agent to help him out because he had to sign a lot of paperwork. That's crazy. Bro immediately gets them a record deal with Decca and wow. starts booking them tours across the UK. Um, then he was like, huh, we gotta work on this band's image. Because you gotta think, the only big band to really ever make it at this point is the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And they're just starting to surge. Like, America's kind of catching on to the Beatles. Yeah. So he tries to put the stones in suits and make them... Why would you put Mick Jagger in a suit? <laughs> they make them uh, look like the Beatles. Obviously, no. He also... At this point, they have a pianist. They kick him out because he's like 25 and too old for the rest of the band. Okay. And Andrew has this theory that kids can only count to five so that there should only ever be five band members in a band. He may be onto something... He did say that, he but. did say like when you photograph a band like you have to have your front man in the center and then your two on either two side ways. like yeah. six would not have photographed as well uh, he has a point you know what it's not wrong it's not wrong um, 
Every band that's listening to this, by the way, I'm just looking around, like six person bands just looking around right now. Who can now. we cut? Vote them off the island. Kick out your pianist. It obviously works. So he very quickly learn, realizes that the Stones are not going to get very far being this, you know, second rate, second string Beatles act in yeah. suits. So he kind of helps them come up with their image, which he describes as a raunchy, gamey, unpredictable bunch of undesirables. And he wants to establish an image that is threatening, uncouth, and animalistic. Well, you got it. He told he liked to lie about the band's age to make them seem younger than they were because 20 is so old. And he saw the potential both in like the political landscape and just the world landscape for a rebellion in culture and music. So, dude was woke. He is responsible for Michael going by Mick. This is where Mick becomes Mick Jagger. I'm glad I don't have to keep that straight in my head anymore. I literally had to write Mike on every single one of those (laughs) points because I wanted to call him Mick. He kind of helps him explore his identity. Um, He, Mick, has always had a, he had a strong stage presence, but Andrew helps him to embrace this androgyny, delinquency, leather, stage makeup, eyeliner, tight leather pants. Like, Mm -hmm. he helps him come up with all of that. Um which we'll get to a little bit in a little while. And like I said, he would pay people to go hype up at concerts. But because of this, sometimes the crowds got a little too hype and riots would ensue. <laughs> Girls would jump off of balconies oh. into the pit, like into the mosh pit, which really wasn't a mosh pit. But, but yeah. Yeah. They would like... Beta mosh pit, if you will. Yeah. The B version of a mosh pit. Yeah. Um, and it was this huge thing in England at the time. The Beatles were the good guys. You, but you did not want your kid to grow up to be or date a stone. Like, they were anti-anti-stones. And then you look at the Beatles' history and you're like, Whoa. <laughs> whoops. Which only backfires because then all the kids just go crazy for the stones because mom and dad said no. Yeah. So their first single is a Chuck Berry cover called Come On, which they flat out refuse to ever play live. <laughs> they record it. They're like, nah, that's not ours. That's it. it it's like... Because they had a, they made it to get a single on the charts, mm-hmm. so that they could like play outside of London, because it's the only way to do that. But then they never wanted to play it. Their second single is a Lennon and McCartney song called "I Want to Be Your Man." So one day the Stones were in the studio, and John Lennon and Paul McCartney just dropped by. Of course, because there's only two bands in England at this point. Yeah. Um, and Lennon McCartney just really liked writing songs and giving them away to their friends. They were actually pretty good friends with the Beatles That's cool. throughout their whole career. Um, uh, Mick Jagger and McCartney are still good friends to this day. But Lennon McCartney also recorded that same song with the Beatles, and it appears on the album with the Beatles. So at this point, Andy is like, dude, you guys got to write your own songs if you're going to go anywhere. So there's a rumor that he locked... Keith Richards and Mick Jagger in a kitchen and said, don't come out until you have a song. (laughs) So they wrote a song, but the two of them, their path as songwriters was real slow. So their first full album only has one Jagger uh, Richards original, and it's Tell Me. But it doesn't matter who wrote the song, because at this point, the whole world is crazy. The Beatles are at the top of the charts. Like America wants... British bands. The British invasion is like lighting a fire right now. So 
Because it's October 1964, where else do you go to promote your band than the Ed Sullivan Show? So they go to the Ed Sullivan Show, and they cause such a reaction on this show that Ed Sullivan bans them from ever going back. Okay, I knew they were bans, (laughs) but was it because, like, all the moms called and were like, this is an outrage! So the, the particular episode that they were on for Ed Sullivan... Like, the acts that night were a famous violin player okay, and some other, like, instrumental artist. And then you got the Stones. So this is where I wanted to talk about Jagger's stage persona. <clears throat> he wore, like, pancake makeup, blue eyeshadow, mm-hmm. eyeliner. Uh, he carried himself with a ton of confidence. Like, he's the cockiest person I've ever seen on a stage. Like, yeah. There's a reason that they're like that he's a legend. He is the original frontman for a band. Like as big as the Beatles were, they didn't have a frontman. No, that's that's what a lot of people don't realize is the Beatles. Paul McCartney was not the mm-hmm. lead singer. No, not there was not there was no such thing as a lead singer. It's with the, the Beatles. four of them equally. Yeah. Well, then you have Mick up here who's shaking his skinny butt in his leather pants, <laughs> thrusting his hips Elvis style. He did. He drew a lot of inspiration from Elvis. Basically, if you took Elvis and the Beatles and smushed them together, you have the stones. Yeah, that's fair. And there was a, an article I read from this time that said that girls learned to scream at bands again because they, they hadn't really had... Like, American youth had not had a reaction to someone since Elvis, like, like they did to the stones on Ed Sullivan. Presley made girls scream, but he did not have Jagger's ability to make men feel uncomfortable. Oh. That is my favorite line I've ever read in a description. That's awesome. Um, Jagger played a lot with gender identity. He would, like, wear girls' clothes, and, I mean, he did this before Bowie even did this. Like, this is, this is a 60s, this is 20 years where Bowie even brings the idea of, like, androgyny to the mainstream yeah there's Mick Jagger wearing a like thick makeup and being confident as hell about it like making everyone uncomfortable so he invents the rock frontman 1965 happens and this is a huge year for them because they have hit after hit after hit after hit like some of the most iconic 60s rock songs come from just the stones in just this one year we have I Can't Get No Satisfaction, mm-hmm. which is their first international hit and has one of the most recognizable riffs in all of rock history. Fun fact about that riff is one morning, Keith just wakes up, goes, huh, my tape finished, whatever tape was in his, uh, in his deck at the time. So he rewinds it and starts playing it again. He goes... I don't remember writing this. It's him playing the guitar. What? He got so stoned the night before. Wrote this riff, then falls asleep. So the whole tape is like the opening riff and then 10 minutes of him snoring. <laughs> so at first, Thank God he recorded it. Because we would have lost. We would have lost it forever. That would be fun in a parallel universe. I like know. where that song wasn't written. Didn't exist. That's crazy. Uh, so he didn't think it was that cool. And he was like, it's garbage. Why are we going to write a song about this? But the rest of the band was like, uh, no, we got to write a song about that. And uh, it kind of describes, they're starting to pick up momentum in this career. And uh, they wrote the lyrics to kind of describe the feeling of no matter how many times you go out on stage and play in front of the crowd, like 
you, you're never going to get that high that you're chasing, mm-hmm. which is interesting considering the trajectory of their career yeah. and their drug use. But what? Uh, this year, they also release 19th Nervous Breakdown, Get Off My Cloud, and Paint It Black. I love that song. We all know you love this. <laughs> but uh, one thing that's interesting about Paint It Black is it's, it's a rock song that features a sitar. Which is not a thing that anyone has ever done at this point. They like, were doing that before the Beatles. Yeah. So they are not afraid to get experimental at this point. In addition to playing with, like, sounds. Because none of those songs sound the same. Like, I Can't Get No Satisfaction sounds nothing like Paint It Black. They're also going to talk about taboo issues. And they're not going to stop this for the next 60 years. So the, in 1967, they released... Or 1966, sorry. They released a song called Mother's Little Helper... Which, as far as anyone is concerned, is the first song to talk about prescription drug abuse. Wow. Um, Which is not something anyone talked about in 1966, much less about stay-at-home moms. Like... Did they talk about anything besides, like, I love you, sugar booger stuff? Like... No. This song is basically like, mom's not happy unless she has her pill. And this is not a good thing. Yeah, they're like... Way to go, guys. She's exposing an issue. Just cut straight to it. There was an interesting article I read. I'm not going to talk about it right now, but it talks about, like, the specific drug that they wrote it about and, like, how it was being prescribed at the time. Mm -hmm. And I'll just go ahead and talk about it. I forget whatever it was, but, like, it was prescribed to women basically to help with postpartum depression. And they would give it to them and then stop it cold turkey. But this particular drug is supposed to be weaned off of because it's a mood lifter. It's like an antidepressant. Uh, they weren't calling it at that time. And then when they would go off at cold turkey, they would be, get super sick and have all these withdrawal symptoms. And oh, wow. I don't know where they found the inspiration for the song because none of them are sticking around with any lady at this point to get them pregnant or hang out with them. But good for them. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, in 1967, they released Between the Buttons, which is not suggestive at all. <laughs> it has their hit Ruby Tuesday, which is one of my favorite Stone songs. And the song, Let's Spend the Night Together, also not subtle. Ed Sullivan lifts his band on the stones, invites them back where they sing this song. (laughs) But Ed makes them change the lyrics to be, let's spend some time together. If you you wrote the song that way, sing it. If you watch the clip of this, though, Jagger sings it and rolls his eyes so hard they like go back into his skull because he's like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever had to do in my life. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, unfortunately, at this time, they also get hardcore into drugs themselves. So they start out, you know, as all drug addicts do, and they just smoke weed. And yeah. then it just skyrockets from there. They very quickly go into cocaine the next year. All of them have drug problems. Brian is the one... He, I won't say he's doing it the most. He's just not the most careful with it. So he gets arrested a lot. Like, a lot. Poor Brian. Well, no, I'm not going to say poor Brian, because you, you did your own choices. But I will say this. The dude is running from getting girls pregnant. And now he's running from the law. Yeah, it'll it'll all catch up with him. Don't worry. Okay. Um. So the more famous they get, the more drugs they do, but the more anti-establishment they get. So okay. their home base is still the UK at this point. Um, and they're very anti-government. But they're also hanging out with Princess Margaret. So, like, it doesn't oh, really? really make sense. Yeah, Mick Jagger. Oh, I hope the Queen covers that. Mick, I'm not the Queen, the Crown. Uh, they might. I hope they uh, do. They're, I don't know if it's at this specific time, but they hang out. Jagger and Princess Margaret are actually pretty good friends. But, so, rumors start circulating about their drug use, as they always do when famous people are doing drugs, and they get mad about it. So they start to, like, 
a lot of them are true, but a lot of them are over-exaggerated, mm-hmm. as we do. So in 1967, Keith throws an acid party. Oh, that's tough. That's what it's called. It's just an acid party. It does not hide the, the goal here. He invites George Harrison and his wife, uh, Mick and his girlfriend, but then someone tips the cops off about the acid because <laughs> what, what else would you do with your time than tell on Mick Jagger and, <laughs> and Keith? So as Keith. soon as... But they wait, the cops wait until George Harrison leaves and busts the party. That's not fair. <laughs> that's, that's, that makes me mad. If so, you're going to show up at a party, you get arrested with the rest. George Harrison gets off fine. At the, when the, when the uh, police get there, Keith is so far in his LSD trip that he mistakes the officers for dwarves and welcomes them into his house. <laughs> but despite the fact that he was so welcoming to the dwarves, they still, Mick and Keith have to go to jail for the night. Which, I mean, you do your time, you obviously were high. Yeah. But uh, the public rioted. They thought that it was like useless to persecute rock stars because they, they elevated them to such a profile that like they're like, it's not that bad. As long as they're making music for us, it's fine. We'll look the other way. So later that same year, the police do a drug bust at Brian Jones's house and he gets arrested on a marijuana possession, which means three of the five stones now have drug charges <laughs> pending against them. So at this point, the the Times in the UK ran what has been no, like noted as one of the most famous editorials, and they called it "Who Breaks a Butterfly Upon a Wheel," which is a weird title, but it's about drugs, so we're not going to question it. Um, in which their super conservative ed- editor, named William Rees Mogg, surprised the whole country by criticizing the government and pointing out that if Jagger had been treated Jagger and Jones and Richards were treated more harshly than like some Joe off the street. Yeah. Which is so interesting and such an opposite of the American prosecution system. I mean, cuz if they had gotten the busted in America, they'd be like, "Oh, hey, you're good." Yeah. But the Queen's England persecuted them harder than anybody else. That I mean, if you think about it though, they're the ones, they're the Opposites of the Beatles. Yeah. So like, oh, yeah, they're getting picked on more. I mean, they wait till George Harrison leaves the LSD yeah. party. Yeah. So this only fuels their anti-establishment fire. Oh, I'd imagine. But it made the Stones the most envied band of the 1960s, and is really what set people off onto wanting to achieve this rock and roll lifestyle. Like the Beatles aren't having this this phenomenon around them like people are appreciating their music but they're not trying to be Mick Jagger or be um Keith Richards so while they're waiting for their sentencing they write a song called we love you to thank their fans for their loyalty which the song literally starts the sound of prison doors closing (laughs) subtle (laughs) uh Keith and Mick are acquitted because they're Keith and Mick uh but Brian gets a fine and is asked to get professional help he should have taken that professional help Spoiler. At this point, they split ways with their friend, oh, a friend Andy, because uh, he told Andrew told the band that they were being childish and needed to stop doing drugs. So they're like, "Bye, Andrew." <laughs> At this point, they also pick up some other bad habits, and all of them start sleeping with multiple people at multiple times. Uh, I think throughout the course of his life. Mick has been married like three times, but he has like 20 kids. It's not really 20. It's like seven. 
Really? But okay. he's got a lot of kids. He didn't marry most of these kids' moms. He okay. denied that some of these kids existed for a while. Keith's in the same boat. Keith has, I think, in total, he's had five kids. Okay. Only been married once or twice. He was a little bit more consistent. But Jagger is sleeping with anyone and everyone at this point, uh, male or female. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a little bit. 1968. They release Jumpin' Jack Flash, perhaps their best-known song, as a single while they're working on their next album. The inspiration was Keith Gardner, <laughs> Good. <laughs> whose name is Jack Dyer. He apparently liked had this habit of stomping around in his, in his welly boots, and so they wrote a song about it because... What a great... Honestly, I don't blame them because when do you get an imagery like that? I don't know. There's nothing what the song sounds like. But one day, uh, Jagger and Keith were just like hanging out at Keith's house and they're stoned out of their mind. So they're waking up and here comes Gardner, Jack, just stomping around. Um, so they somehow got the idea to add Flash after jumping Jack and they just started riffing and talked to him about his real childhood and they made a song about it. <laughs> Wait, so they talked to the gardener. <laughs> Wait, so they're writing the song. Let me paint the picture. They're writing the song. While they, super stoned. While super stoned. And I go, shit, this is good. Yeah. You know, make it better if we get some true life trauma in it. Yeah, Let's go talk to the gardener and see what he's been through. Basically. Basically. <laughs> so they, um, that, that kind of whets everyone's appetite for their next album, Beggar's Banquet, which the lead single off of that is Street Fighting Man, which addressed the political upheavals of the 60s, and Sympathy for the Devil, which is probably my actual favorite Stone song. It's just, go listen to it. It'll be on our playlist. There is tons of controversy over the design of the album cover. It's not the first nor the last time this will happen with a Stones cover because it featured a public toilet uh, with graffiti covering the walls. It took them six months to come to a decision about this album. Wait. Art. Like, That's interesting that people would be upheaved about that, though. It's honestly, as we'll see, it's not the worst of the Stones album cover. Yes. I, I they should have like, just let that one go. I feel like that's mild. It's it is mild. It's fine. It's a toilet covering graffiti. I've seen I've seen worse. Compared to when Andy Warhol gets in the picture. Oh, here we go. So, that same year, they decide that they're tired of being confined to the operating hours of a recording studio because they're artists and they need to do things on their own schedule. So they just convert this this like they make a mobile recording studio so they can do whatever they want whenever they want. That's a good idea. And they rent it out to other artists. That's so smart. So, two of the artists they, that used this particular mobile studio was Led Zeppelin for Led Zeppelin 3 and 4. Really? And Deep Purple when they recorded Smoke on the Water. That's so cool. Yep. So, in 1969, we're going to stay here for a little bit. <laughs> Because it's not a good year for the Stones. It's not a good year in general. I mean, it's a no. crazy year. We went to the moon. That is the only good thing that happened in 1969. Pretty much. Uh, you know how I know that? Did you ever watch the musical episode of Even Stevens? <laughs> <laughs> Someone out there is going to get that reference. Wait, didn't Woodstock happen in 1969? Yep. Yep. I keep, compu- keep confusing um, between 1968 and 1969. It might have been 68. We'll also get to that in Okay. Sorry, because so, I keep interrupting. 1969, Keith steals Brian's girlfriend. 
So Brian starts doing even more drugs to cope with how pissed he is at the rest of the band. So at this point, Mick really wants to go back on tour in the U.S. because the U.S. is the cash cow and you can tour for literally months and not even like hit the same city twice. But Brian can't go because he's got all these drug convictions. The rest of them have been acquitted. Brian can't get a visa. So because of this, they only let Brian play on two tracks on Let It Bleed, which is their album that comes out that year. They tell him that his style of blues guitar, which is the whole reason this band is together in the first place, is outdated and they don't need him. His drug use makes him a liability, so they just kick him out. So he gets, obviously, super depressed. And then the story is unclear. We don't know exactly what happened, but Brian has a drug-fueled party at his house, and no one's paying attention to him, and he they find him at the bottom of the pool, dead, uh, drowned. How old is he? I don't know. He had to be super young. Uh, he's probably in his late 20s. So like a 27? I don't know if he's 27. We'll have to look it up. Um, but he is the first high-profile drug casualty of this age. That sucks. Um, this is before before Janice, before everybody died, like before yeah. Jimmy. He's the first one. Um, so two days after his death, they're scheduled to play some show in a park in the UK, and they show up and do it, even though they're they're very clearly distraught in the photos. Like Mick Jagger is not okay at that show. Yeah. Um, but they said it's what Brian would have wanted. Which is, you shouldn't have kicked him out of the band, but whatever. Yeah. Um, so, this is actually when they really start to peak commercially. Like, Beatles are dying out, the British invasion is over, but the Stones, as one uh, documentary watch said, they transcended the British invasion. Because the Beatles are about to break up. They're not going to be yeah. around much longer. It's 1969. Are they broken up at this point? No, 1970, I believe, is when they okay. break up. Okay, they're not going to be around much longer. Stones are just getting started. Um, so, <laughs> their last album of the their last album of the sixties comes out called "Let It Bleed," which is not a controversial album cover, but is my favorite one because it's got like this cake with a record on it. It's just a really cool album cover. It has the song "You Can't Always Get What You Want," another iconic song, which is accompanied by the London Bot Choir. <laughs> Who originally asked their name be removed from the album credits <laughs> because they were horrified by the album's material content. <laughs> I, I mean, do you know what you were signing up for when you did a Rolling Stones album? It's not the first Stones album. Like, yeah, I don't know why they didn't think of this before. They later withdrew their request. So they are credited on that song. The album also contains Give Me Shelter, or Give Me Shelter, which is another big one. So, 1969. They want to end the year in a bang. They tour the U.S. and just declare themselves the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Why not? Because <laughs> Mick Jagger does what he wants, and he just makes that decision. Yeah, the Beatles are on their way out. You know what? We'll just take the crown. So they want to kick off the next decade in a really big way. So they get in their head that they're going to do this free concert outside, and they're going to outdo Woodstock single-handedly with just Really? Them. Yes. Have you ever heard about this? That's ballsy. No, I've oh, okay. never heard of this. I had never heard of that, this either, but apparently that's a big thing in Stone's history. You'll see why. Um, so they decide to have it in December in San Francisco to like close out the decade. Good vibes of peace and love or whatever. But they hire the Hells Angels for security. Okay. I know what you're talking about now. I, I've heard this story. And I mean, it's, it's, it's 
it's an early music festival. Like there's a lot of crowding and people are drunk and stoned and it's San Francisco, but it's December. So they're cold and everyone's kind of on edge a little bit because waiting for the concert to start. And one of the Hells Angels bikes gets knocked over Uh-oh. and they get pissed. So when the when the stones took the stage, a riot just immediately breaks out because everyone's on edge. Jeez. No one's happy. We're supposed to be having this concert to like kick off peace and love and Woodstock vibes, and people are like punching each other. And uh, one of the angels actually murders a young man in the front row because what? Okay, so this is a really tricky situation, and I don't know who is in the right or the. I mean, I'll present the facts. Everyone can decide. So they're already on edge because the young man, his name is Meredith Hunter, he's in the front row, he's African-American, he's there with a white girl. But when this, so the Hells Angels are like watching him because they don't trust him. But when the riot breaks out, Meredith pulls out a revolver out of his pocket. So the Hells Angels see this and start stabbing him. Holy cow. None of it's a good situation. Jeez. All in total... At this concert, four people die. One gets stabbed. I think one overdoses and like two die in a ditch somehow. Oh, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of drugs this thing, so who knows? That's insane. So what started as this like ultimate 60s dream of peace and love and unity ends with like four murders and unveils the dark side of rock and roll. Um, and the one, the documentary that I watched about it said that the band was never really the same after that, which... Yeah, yeah. I really hope that they got counseling. I mean, they didn't. They just did drugs to cope with the pain. And some say that that the band actually died that night because they were never the same. Wow. I mean, if you think about it in context, they lose Brian. Yeah, this is all in the same year. Yeah, and they go through the Hell's Angel. Yeah, debacle. Which and that's, jeez. Which that's... now, <laughs> the Hell's Angels who who murdered her killed Meredith are like found guilty and go to jail. So then the Hells Angels, like, are stalking the Stones for, like, the next 10 years, trying to get back at them for this whole situation Holy that they cow. put them in. Um, I read, I don't know how true this is, because I read it in that, that tabloid book, but the Stones were out, like, on a yacht one day in the Pacific, and uh, the Coast Guard found another boat, like, further down that was loaded with explosives oh. that the Hells Angels had, like, sent after them because they were trying to murder them for Jeez. what happened. It's not even their fault. It's no. their fault. No. That's so, stupid. Like I said, I don't know... There's a lot of hearsay right. on this thing. I'm not going to commentate on like what I think was right, but yeah. Um, so that symbolically and figuratively ended the peace and love movement of the '60s. Yeah, I could see that. Because of that, nothing much happens in 1970. So we're going to skip to 1971. At this point, the, the the Stones are just tired of doing what other people want on other people's labels. So they make their own record label. They have the recording studio. <laughs> Why not? There you go. And then this is my favorite one. So they, Mick Jagger and company, make friends with Andy Warhol. Oh, I can't wait. You got quintessential English rebellion with quintessential American rebellion. <laughs> Nothing good can come out of this, right? So this year they released the album Sticky Fingers. Also not subtle. And they have the best album cover which is a photograph of a man from the waist down wearing super tight jeans. Oh, I know this one. Featuring a functioning zipper, which is the coolest thing that I've ever seen. Uh, but when you unzip the zipper, it reveals his underwear was saying, this is not, etc. 
don't know what that means. But for an album in 1971 to have a functioning zipper, like that That's... alone is a production nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I, I knew of that album cover in my mind. Yeah. I didn't... The like, original, obviously now, it doesn't have the function. Yeah, zipper. but that's... Okay, it's I... An, it's an Andy Warhol cool. envision. Um, on the back of that album cover is where we first see the iconic Rolling Stones logo, the tongue and lips, which Jagger hired designer John Pash to make, and Jagger wanted to copy the stuck-out tongue of the Hindu, go- god- Hindu goddess Kali. Hmm. I don't know why Mick Jagger just said it was cool. <laughs> so dude does it. But that is honestly one of the most iconic logos mm-hmm. in the world. Maybe second to Coca-Cola. Yeah. Like you look at that. I think I knew what that was before I even consciously knew who the stones were. Like, yeah, you just know what it is. Um, Sticky Fingers. The best known hit off that album is Brown Sugar. That's all there is to say about that one. And at this point, their anti-establishment comes out full force. They get in a legal dispute with their old manager, not Oldham, I think a different one, uh, who has control over all their money. Something is weird in their contract. They don't actually have control of their own money at this point. Uh, so despite being like a huge commercial success and touring, they're hella broke. Like they have no, no money to their good. name. They got like $17 to their name or whatever. Um, and Britain is known for its super strict tax laws. So what do they do? They evade their taxes by moving to the south of France. <laughs> That's the solution. <laughs> where Run. They, where they continue to live a life of debauchery. So not only are they still doing all the sex, all the drugs, they're avoiding paying their taxes because <laughs> they're not living in the UK right now. But they, in, when they move to the south of France, they pretty much lock themselves up in this mansion and come up with what is arguably their best album, uh, one of the best rock albums of all time, Exile on Main Street, mm-hmm. which is a great title to come out of the fact that they literally locked themselves up to avoid paying taxes. Yes. Um, it contains the iconic songs of Tumbling Dice and Sweet Black Angel, also not subtle, definitely about drugs. Uh, at this point, Keith is doing drugs literally all the time. He's missing rehearsals he has kids and a wife that he's like literally not paying attention to meanwhile Mick Jagger starring in movies he's in a movie he's in multiple movies they're not good um he stars in two during the exile recording called Ned Ned Kelly and performance which is literally a like fictional Mick Jagger he plays himself (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so he kind of is living this like rich jet setting life where he's in a different city all the time for recording. Although one of them, he ends up like in the jungle and ends up super sick. So maybe it wasn't all glamorous. They release Exile. It goes really well. They continue to release four more records, including Goat's Head Soup, which is a horrible name for an album. Yeah, that's interesting. And Only Rock and Roll. In 1974, when they... Right before they record their 23rd album, wow. we skipped a lot here, which is called Black and Blue. Uh, Mick Taylor, one of their the other guitarists, I think he's a guitarist. I've lost track at this point. He leaves. They add Ronnie Wood into the band. This is the first in many shuffles that start to happen at this point in history. In 1976, as I mentioned, Keith is doing a lot of drugs. 
not paying attention to his, to his girl, to his kids. Um, his third son is born and shortly after dies because of sudden infant death syndrome, oh, which in 1976, no one really knew about. Like, you were just called a bad parent. Like, yeah, no one knew about it. So people start blaming. He was high a lot. His wife was high a lot. But his kid died of SIDS. But people blamed them yeah. really hard. So he does more drugs to cope with it. Um, and he just spirals out of control. He winds up in Toronto and gets busted, which probably a good thing he was in Canada. I don't think the U.S. would have treated him as kindly as Canada did. Because yeah. Canada was basically like, you got to get help. Like, we're not going to like put you in jail, but you have got to get help. So he knows he has to clean up. He breaks up with his girlfriend. Not his wife, I guess. His girlfriend. Um, and he, he gets help and he gets clean. It's good for him. But when he cleans up, Jagger's been running the show for literally the last 20 years. Yeah. He decides he wants to start being more assertive in the studio. Uh-oh. Those two things do not work out so great for him. So they get in fights constantly because Jagger's had his way for 20 years. He's not used to someone challenging him. Everyone else has just been like, okay, cool, we'll do what you say. So then they enter the worst decade of their career. 1978. Punk is the big movement. People don't have space for stones anymore. They're old news at this point. They've been around for almost 30 years. Yeah. Uh, so as a last-ditch effort to kind of like hang in there and keep rock and roll alive and usurp the punk movement, they release Some Girls which is a great album. It's very stripped down rock. It's more, it honestly sounds more old stones, but it's, it's enough to like put them back on the map for a little bit. But then they kind of shoot themselves in the foot for a little bit. In 1981 and to 1982, they go on this huge tour, the 20th anniversary tour. Mick and Keith get in a huge fight and everything stops for seven years. Oh, what a fight. <laughs> so they take this time to explore their solo careers, yep. as everyone does in the 80s. You know what that spells. Whenever you hear, oh, we're going to try some solo acts, we all know. The writing's on the wall. Well, they, they, this, this happened backwards to most, I think, solo acts. Mostly they're like, I'm going to go be solo, and then you never hear from the band again. This is like, Mick and Keith got in a huge fight, and then they're like, I don't want to stop making music. Crap, what do I do? Yeah. So they do that. Conveniently, they break up right before Live Aid. So Mick has the opportunity to perform with Tina Turner at Live Aid at the Philadelphia stage. Oh. Uh, they perform a mashup of State of Shock and It's Only Rock and Roll. It's honestly a really uncomfortable performance to watch. Really? I feel like it would have been labeled as super sexy in the day. But I'm, I, Keith is obviously, not Keith, Mick is obviously on something. He touches her a lot. Oh, I'm not comfortable And that. he like takes her skirt off at one point. And what? I don't know if it was like... It, her facial expression, the way she reacts, makes me think it wasn't part of the act. Uh, of course, the crowd goes wild for it. That's dumb. But it, well, I watched it, and it honestly made me really uncomfortable. Yeah. It could have been a really sexy performance. Mick made it not so. Whatever. Yeah. Also for Live Aid, this is my favorite thing I've ever found in my life. Mick Jagger teams up with David Bowie and makes the song yes. Dancing in the Street, which... They, they make it for Live Aid. 
You have to watch this video. The minute she found it, she made, she like hunted me down and showed it to me. There is no doubt in my mind that cocaine was involved in this video. <laughs> my favorite YouTube comment said, the budget for this was $10,000, 10 for the tape it was filmed on, and the other 9990 for coke. <laughs> because they, it's just, it makes no sense. But... The interesting thing to note here, as I mentioned before, Jagger slept with pretty much everybody on the face of the planet at this point, one of which is rumored to be David Bowie. It has never been confirmed by Jagger or Bowie. May he mm-hmm. rest in peace. But Bowie's ex-wife said that she frequently found him in, oh, found them in bed together. So I'm, like I said, there are seven sides to every story here. Pick your side. We don't know. But something that is really cute. Uh, so... Bowie is several, he's a good 10 to 20, I don't know exactly, years younger than Mick. Yeah. Really? So Bowie's first concert was seeing somebody, I don't remember who was headlining, but the Stones opened for whoever he was seeing. Hmm. So he grew up wanting to be Mick Jagger. He took his stage name from Mick Jagger. So Jagger is a knife in Old English. Bowie is a type of knife. Oh. Right? Isn't that, isn't that cool? Oh. A Bowie knife was invented by the American pioneer and folk hero, Jim Bowie. Not relevant. That's Just a Wikipedia so thing. interesting. But yeah, so, but this video, guys, it's literally just jumping. They're in really bad quintessential 80s outfit jumpsuit things that don't make any sense. One point, Mick just grabs a beer off the ground and drinks it. They're like in an alley dancing. <laughs> well, that's what you do in an alley. That is not. I don't understand. So for the entirety of the eighties, because they they kind of the Stones break up in eighty one. They they there's this thought that are the Stones over? Are they going to quietly fade and just be you know the, this relic of the an era like the Beatles are? Mm-hmm. But then in nineteen eighty nine. They're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. At this point, it's the first time that Mick and Keith have seen each other in seven years. Hmm. And they pick up just like old times. They're bros again. They're over oh, it. They let their feet die. Heals. They release a song called Mixed Emotions that's kind of about them getting back together. Because, I mean, they've been friends for a really long time at this point. And yeah. like, they kind of realized, we're being dumb. Let's get back and do this thing. So they go back on tour. And one of their openers... Is Guns N' Roses. Really? Yes. So they that I've I've read enough about Guns N' Roses to say that that's what helped propel them. Like they they released uh, Appetite for Destruction and then toured. I think I may be wrong with Stones. The Stones are actually responsible for launching a lot of people's careers. I believe it. Uh, I mean, they toured so much. Yeah. But this tour, our old friends, the anti-establishment, anti-commercialism Stones. Go on a tour sponsored by Budweiser. Okay. <laughs> Journey right. was also on a tour sponsored by Budweiser. Budweiser was blowing a lot of money in sponsorships in the eighties. <laughs> they at at the concerts, you could sign up for a Rolling Stones credit card. Really? Yes. Oh, I wish it was still like that. I'd know. sign up for an Elton credit card today. Um, and the tour for the first time includes backup dancers. Oh, I don't like that. Yeah, so they kind of, they kind of, I don't want to say they sell out for a little bit, but they go very commercial. Yeah. From a band that was very anti that. Yeah. In 1994, 
we're gonna have a bunch of little quick snippets now. They become the first band to broadcast a concert over the internet. Really? <laughs> you know that was a horrible reception. What was the year again? 1994. Oh, dang. So it's like a baby. It was broadcast. The internet is a baby. It was broadcast at 10 frames per second. Oh, so, but that the, hurts my heart. That, that alone is cool that they were the first band to broadcast on the internet. But because it's 1994 and internet security is not a thing... The, the feed that they were using was hijacked by another band called Severe Tire Damage. What? And they were like, we saw an opportunity and we seized it. <laughs> Obviously, they're not Wait. around, so they didn't seize it very well. Is, is there clips of this? I did not look. So I'm going to go look. You should go look, too. I'll let's go, let's yeah. look together. Let's all look together. If we find it, we'll post it. In 2003, you're going to like this. I can't wait. Mick was knighted by Prince Charles for his contributions to music. The queen conveniently had hip surgery two days before that she put off for a year and a half. She didn't want to be the one to knight Mick Jagger. There's my girl. There's my Lizzie. She, she, I mean, she, she and Mick, like, she would have seen, you know, the anti-government stance that he had, but she also just didn't like that uh, he was friends with her sister. So she said, I think I'll get that hip surgery now. Charles, you do that. That's, um, that's amazing. Keith gets really mad at Mick for accepting the knighthood because he's like, these guys put us in prison for our drug charges back in the day. How yeah. can you accept a knighthood? And he's like, yeah, but it's a knighthood. Yeah. Why would you say no? And uh, I think Keith is just mad that he wasn't asked. <laughs> that's probably right. And now we catch up to the 2006 Super Bowl halftime show, which is my first conscience memory conscious memory of ever like putting a face with the stones mm-hmm. so i've been 13 this year i've watched every super bowl conscious like i have a memory of watching every super bowl since uh the janet jackson i think that's for every Timberland. kid yeah like we, it, that would have been- every millennial that was like oh boy i get to remember the super bowl Whoop. <laughs> whoops that's the first one i remember my cousin was babysitting me and she was making chicken nuggets or something and I'm the only one in the whole house who saw it. The little uh, seven-year-old me who saw the wardrobe I'm pretty sure. I just have a memory of, like, begging my mom to watch the halftime because normally we just didn't. That just wasn't her thing. And so I got to watch it this time. And then that happened. And, it was <laughs> and like, then you weren't allowed to watch it anymore. <laughs> I was like, damn it. Um, so they... I remember them. they announced, like... We didn't have the internet, really, in 2006. Not like we do now. So they're like, it's the Rolling Stones. And I remember asking my mom, I was like, I thought they were dead. Because <laughs> I was 13. I didn't know any better. Uh, but I, I remember watching them. They have this amazing uh, Rolling Stone lips stage. Where the, I remember that, The yeah. tongue was like, it, it was fabric. So like they dropped it and there's a crowd just chilling like that close to Mick Jagger. And I just remember watching the whole thing, like not taking my eyes at the TV. Like that's that's the power that Mick Jagger has over people, yeah. even thirteen year olds who didn't who thought he was dead. Um, <laughs> like it, it was. I mean, he was old at that point too. He was definitely up there. Yeah. And he was just. It was entrancing to watch them perform. Uh, my favorite. I went back and rewatched it. I wish I hadn't. Because, first off, the quality is horrible. Isn't that the thing, though, about film, like, from 2000s, and you go back and you look and you're like... I remember this so vividly. Why does it look like garbage? (laughs) It was in HD, wasn't it? Like, in my head, I'm like, this is clear and crystal. Nope, the 
aspect ratio is the old square aspect ratio. Yeah. Like we hadn't gone to widescreen TVs yet. Um, but uh, it's it's worth noting that when... So they open with their, their first song, and then Mick talks for a little bit. And he's like, we could have played at Super Bowl one, but everything comes to he who waits. And I was like, wait a minute, could they? Super Bowl one was 1967. That was just when they were breaking. And I was like, yeah. cool. Imagine how... Yeah. That was Super Bowl forty. Oof. In 2008, Martin Scorsese films a Stones performance and makes a documentary about it and wins a bunch of awards. <laughs> he made a Rolling Stones documentary? Yep. It's called Shine a Light. How have I not? You have to pay to watch it, so I did not watch it, but um, I, d- I, I literally watch it. had no clue he, he made it. Yeah, that. it was in 2008. Wow. In 2012, they began their 50 and counting tour. Oh. It is now 2019, and they are still on tour. <laughs> Oh my you can gosh. go. I, I looked at tickets. They're performing at FedEx Field in Maryland. Yeah. In September, I think tickets are stupid expensive. I'm sure. But they I are. really want to go now. Um, all of them now are granddads in their seventies, but they're still selling out stadium tours. Like, that's insane. This and that's that's my neck. They've outlasted all of their contemporaries from the ages, no matter what decade you're looking at. Yeah. They outlasted the Beatles. That's probably their most closely related, but like no other band is selling out FedEx Field at the age of 74. Like that's insane. That's crazy. And their music has aged really well. Um, One of the documentaries I watched talked about how like when they were little, like the Stones were younger, they were, you know, imitating Chuck Berry and Muddy Waters and all of these bands. But now garage bands spend their time imitating the Stones. Yeah. So they became, like, what their idols, what the Stones' idols were, they became for, like, millions of other young, aspiring musicians, which is pretty cool. It all comes full circle. So their legacy is insane. Uh, Since they formed, they've sold over 240 million albums. Wow. This is 30 studio albums, 23 live albums, 25 compilation albums. Jeez. Been on 48 tours and released 120 singles. Holy cow. What was the last album? And they're still kicking. They, so they just released last year or this year, either late, late last year or early this year, a compilation, like a 50 song collection called Honk. Honk. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I, yeah. <laughs> um, their top single ever is I Can't Get No Satisfaction. It's considered by many experts to be the prime example of classic rock and roll. Yeah. That's fair. Um, one thing I found that was interesting was, so they obviously drew a lot of inspiration from particular artists, especially Muddy Waters, who they stole the name of their band for. Uh, and Muddy Waters was quoted as saying that the Rolling Stones and the other English bands of, area, of this era piqued the interest of American youth in blues musicians, which is interesting because we invented blues, but no one ever here at that point was like interested in blues anymore because yeah. it was old news. But when the Stones broke, everyone was interested in blues again. So, like, people like Muddy Waters, uh, their record sales went up. So the Stones, being a British rock band, reconnected America with their musical roots. That's a, that's that's the thing, though, because blues started rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Blues started metal, if you think about mm-hmm. it. Uh, we would be nowhere without blues. Yeah. Um, so they... they declared themselves the world's greatest rock band back in 1969 but the name is honestly stuck and i was like okay but why i know that 
we're not here to discuss like who's better or whatever, but yeah. this is different because they declare themselves the best rock bands. We're going to talk a little bit about why they are considered that. So it's interesting because if you search like who is the best rock band of all time, you're always going to get the Beatles coming up. Mm-hmm. No, nothing, nothing ever really points the stones other than Mick Jagger's self-declaration. But, so the Beatles win in terms of creativity, invention, art, sales, cultural impact. Like, we're not making... The movie Yesterday comes out this weekend. It's not about the Stones, it's about the Beatles. But the Beatles were never definitively a rock and roll band. They experimented too much. Way too much. Yeah. The Stones kind of just picked their lane and stayed there. Like, their, their songs are very much similar, but also very much different. Like They mm-hmm. have a very distinctive style. The Beatles broke up. The Stones kept going. That's obviously going to give you a leg up. Yeah. And they pretty much stayed in the spotlight for two solid decades recording albums and then three more touring. They could have literally never made another album after that. And people would have still, I think, come to their tours. But they kept making albums as well. So that's pretty cool. Keith Richards is quoted, quoted as saying that he doesn't want to have that title. Like he thinks that the title should be shared by multiple bands because it's one of the best things about rock and roll is that every night there's a new world's greatest band. Cause one night someone can have an off night and someone could absolutely slay it so that they deserve yeah. the title for that night. That's, that's so a good way of looking at it. He's never really liked that title. He thinks that it should all be a but, collective. But Keith's always been he's the an, true musician artist dude. Yeah, he, he just, just wants to play music. Mix the marketer. He just wants to play the guitar. It's all he wants. Yeah. Um, the Stones, but particularly Mick Jagger, have been immortalized in such songs as TikTok by Kesha. That's true. Uh, Swagger Jagger by Cher Lloyd, which uh, there's a there's a spot in the book where uh, he talks Jagger talks about that song would have come out in like 2008 2009, and he had a, like a 13 14 year old daughter at that time, and she didn't believe that it was him that. The song was talking about because I mean he was like old and you know your old dad's not cool. Yeah. He like had to convince her that the song was about. <laughs> uh, most most famous and the title of this episode moves like Jagger yeah. by Maroon Five, and because Swagger and Jagger rhyme, it ends up in a lot of song lyrics. Mm-hmm. And they're no they're across all genres. You got Swagger like us by Ti featuring Kanye West. The Time by the Black Eyed Peas, and then my personal favorite, Heart and Soul by the Jonas Brothers from Camp Rock 2. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, that song actually has that in there? And I went and listened to it, and it does. There is a great John Mulaney bit that talks about meeting Mick Jagger when he wrote for SNL that I'm going to show you oh, after we finish wait. this episode, but I'll post it. It's, it's just worth a note. And to end this, we're going to talk about what happened on Mick Jagger's 75th birthday. These scientists, who are already big nerds, because they study fossils for a living. They study fossilized stoneflies for a living. Mm. But they also really like the Rolling Stones. So they decided for Jagger's 75th birthday that they were going to name two new species of fossil after him. So we have tero, uh, Petroperla McJaggeri <laughs> and Lapisperla Keith Richardsi. Which were placed Aww. in a new family called Petroperlidae. The new family was named in honor of the band, derived from the Greek Petra that stands for stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, s- the scientists refer to these two fossils as 
The Rolling Stone Flies. <laughs> I love that so That's much. That's great. What a great birthday gift. You're just a fo- That's like you're, a slap in the face, fossil. though. By saying, happy 75th birthday, you're a fossil. <laughs> Literally. Oh my god. So that's the rolling that is the much abbreviated, very fast version of the Rolling Stones. Well you really kept it rolling. Yeah. I'm gonna think of every pun I can and just put it in there. That was a lot. I apologize right now for how long this episode was, guys. Yes. We've had longer. And by longer I mean we've only done four. <laughs> yeah. You wanna you wanna yeah. close out? Wait, what's your drink? Oh, my my drink. Is... Tell me your drink. So my drink is this Sam Adams Porch Rocker Summer Shandy. It's honestly really good, but I want to read you the back of this about uh, where a shandy comes from. So shandies are inspired by German cyclists who would mix beer with lemonade after a hard ride. And then as Beth Ann's husband pointed out, we Americans just just cut straight to the alcoholic lemonade and just make mics. (laughs) this This is a pretty good beer. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. You also can leave us a review. We love reviews, especially when you leave text with them. So go ahead and leave us a review on any of the mentioned podcasts. Also, special thanks to Josh Tarpley, a.k.a. Mabu, a.k.a. My Ride or Die. Um, <laughs> for, Leah hates that phrase um, for our intro riff and Lauren Page photography for our cover art you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at she will rock you podcast uh, you also can follow our personal accounts on Instagram at Bethann Tarpley that's B-E-T-H-A-N-N-E and then Leah Elizabeth dot J thanks for listening have a good day Done the drugs. Done the drugs. recording and I was like I don't want to stop I know that look he's just a he's baby. so little I'm gonna name him Clyde <laughs> is there another one uh I just Clyde I think I've only seen one hi Clyde what a cutie <laughs> that's amazing okay thank you for listening you can s-